Acts chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Hear God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray you'd give us tender hearts that your seed would land on good soil and bear much fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this week that uh, there are two best days in a person's life. The first is the day you are born, and the other is the day you learn why you were born. Are you a believer in Christ today? If so, then I know why you were born. Uh, I know your purpose. I know why you exist. And it's to be an ambassador for the kingdom of God. To be a royal representative. To be a witness in this world. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So really the question for every follower of Christ is not, am I an ambassador, but what kind of ambassador am I? How effective am I being in representing the king? And if you look at your life, you might say, well, I'm, I could be better as an ambassador, or I really, you may feel I'm not a very good ambassador at all. And if you arrive at that conclusion, you may want to go back to your training. You may want to go back to your preparation. And if it's true, not just that you feel that you're not a very good ambassador, but, but maybe you're right. Maybe you're not very effective as such. Maybe you were never adequately prepared. That's what we'll be looking at for the next few moments in these verses, because what we have here is Christ preparing his apostles, that handful of disciples, to be his ambassadors Uh, in the days ahead, which they would do. Now, before we look at the verses in Acts that we'll just have a cursory glance at in a moment, I want to make some observations about the author. Because without question, over the past few years, um, 
like it was decades ago. The Bible is being attacked, especially about the authorship. And uh, whether even a man like Luke or Matthew or Mark, even they lived. And I think those answers, those questions have been answered firmly uh, long ago. And yet they continually come up as though it's something new. Um, Luke, Luke is the man who wrote this. He was a native of a town called Antioch. And we know by his profession, he was a physician. And he had become a follower of Christ through the Apostle Paul. And he followed Paul uh, pretty much most of Paul's ministry until Paul was put to death. Uh, uh, then, then Luke continued to minister in his name, in Christ's name. Uh, Luke was very highly educated. He was highly cultured, and we know this because of the way he wrote uh, the Greek language. It was a very cultured form of the way he, he writes. And so we can gain a, a assurance from the method that he used. Now, you don't need to turn there, but he describes the method he used as he began the first volume of this work, which was the Gospel of Luke. Acts is the second volume. But let me, let me read you the first four verses that Luke writes as he begins the Gospel of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So... Luke is saying that he's gathered together all the materials before he writes, and he's gathered the materials from eyewitnesses who were there. That's what any consummate historian does before they write. When I read Unbroken, the edition I read back before Christmas, at the end had an interview with Lauren, Laura Hillenbrand, who wrote it. And I was impressed. She spent four years doing the research before she began to write her book libraries, newspaper clippings, reading all about Louis Zamperini and World War II and, and pilots and other POWs of the, the Japanese. Exhaustive research. That's what Luke says he's done. He has put this all together. He has researched it. And toward what end had he done that? Verse 4 says that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. If you're going to be persecuted, if you're going to suffer and die for something, you better know that it's precisely true, not generally true, but exactly true. If you're going to be an ambassador, if we're going to be ambassadors for Christ, we need to know that what we witness to and are ambassadors of is true, true, true. We need the testimony and writings of someone who has investigated thoroughly why? Because not one of us was there when Jesus was crucified. None of us saw the resurrected Christ. None of us witnessed the miracles that he performed, like raising Lazarus from the dead or feeding the multitudes. We are totally dependent upon the eyewitness testimonies and the external witness of the Holy Spirit. And we want exact truth. And Luke is saying that's what he's given to us. Luke employed detailed methods to give us the accurate rendering of actual events. So we gain assurance from his method, we gain assurance from his message. 
Acts is a second volume of a two-volume work. The first is the Gospel of Luke and then Acts. They were written on scrolls. Now, a scroll in that day could be about 36 feet long. I think that's about as far from here past that piano. And so his first volume, when you finish that, that was one volume. The first was Luke. The second is Acts. Now, the first, he told us, in, 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 well, in verse 1, look at Acts verse 1. Uh, in the first book, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. So he's saying, that's when I covered up to his ascension. The day he was taken up. Now he's going to write other things. Now the books of the Bible are not inspired. The names of the books of the Bible, let me put it that way. <laughs> uh, they did not give names to their, the, the books. This is called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, but Luke did not call it that. Uh, just as the chapters and verses were added later. You know, I don't think the maps in the Bible are inspired, you know, if that's a, or the, uh, the, the notes in the back. It's the scriptures themselves that are. So often these titles were assigned, and sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles. But if we, based on what he's saying, it could be the Acts of what Jesus did through his church after he ascended, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's a mighty long title. And so we call it Acts or Acts of the Apostles. It's saying Jesus is still at work. That sounds funny to a non-believer. We are saying Jesus is still alive and he's at work. No other religion can make that claim. Mormons cannot claim that their founder, Joseph Smith, is still alive and at work in the world. Muslims certainly cannot claim that the prophet Muhammad himself is still at work in the world. But Christ is, and he uses ambassadors like you and me to carry out that work. So let's look at just a few observations here in verses 1 to 5 first. How, if we're to be effective as ambassadors, if we're to see success there, then that will depend on our education and our training. It mentions here the apostles in verse 2, after he had given commands through them. And he appeared, presented himself for more than for 40 days, during 40 days, speaking to them about the kingdom of God. The apostles, uh, the, the word means those who are sent, a sent one. So the disciples were called apostles. They were sent by him. And they had been with him the better part of his public ministry, and yet much of that time, if you read the Gospels, they seemed clueless, or at least confused. They would ask questions that we read now and say, how could you have been thinking that way? Of course, if we had been there, we would have been thinking exactly the way that they were. It just appeared they did not get it. So successful mission depends on education. Jesus has died, he's been resurrected, and now for 40 days he is preparing these men. Uh, the resurrection appearances were proofs. As he mentions there, these appearances were proofs, it says in verse 3, appearing to them and speaking about the kingdom of God. Proofs of what? Well, they proved he who was divine. They proved he had victory over death. They validated his words. These appearances validated his words. The, the proofs that they attested to were the fact that his atoning work was finished. It was complete. And so each time he appeared, it spelled the end of sin. Uh, for apart from the proof, we would still be dead in our sins. And so for 40 days, 40 days, Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. And he met with them again and again and again 
We often overlook that. We know about his death. We know about his resurrection. We, give, we tip our hats to the fact that he ascended to God, but we forget about that critical 40-day period. The last verses of the Gospel of Luke tell us more specifically what he was teaching them. It says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what was he going over with them during those 40 days? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, the prophetical books. He took them through the scriptures, explaining them to them. Why? Because you and I cannot really be effective ambassadors and witnesses if we do not know what we're talking about. These are the founders of the worldwide church. These men founded this church, if we could trace it all the way back. First Presbyterian church and every evangelical church in the world. So for 40 days, he fills their minds with theology and Bible survey and Bible truth and ministry skills and over and over. Why, why is it that talking to others about your faith is so difficult? I mean, I, I don't mean anyone that says it's easy. Most of us say it's very difficult. Is it because we're all just a bunch of cowards? I don't think so. Is it because we don't care about anybody else and we don't really care where people spend eternity? I don't really think that's the issue either. I think most, most of us find that we don't witness because we don't have a growing relationship with God. We're not seeing God work in our own lives. See, unless you know him personally and passionately, unless you're growing in him, you will not witness. You just won't. Uh, I don't know anyone who is passionate about something who doesn't talk about it. A lot of you probably this morning talked about the masters. And it had nothing to do with whoever you were talking. You just brought it up because you were thinking about it and you were passionate about it. Or some movie that meant a lot to you or some book you're reading or some restaurant or something like that. We have a way of bringing things up like that. So the answer, in, I think, in being an effective ambassador, an effective witness, is to have a growing relationship with Christ. And as we get to know him, we will talk to other people. And we will speak as eyewitnesses. Now, let me tell you something that happened to us. It was an odd thing. A number of years ago, Barbara and I and two of our children and, and, and our son Stephen, we, we, took, we, we went to a soccer tournament our daughter was playing in in Fort Lauderdale between Christmas and New Year's. And it was the first time that I'd lived in Boca Raton, just north of Fort Lauderdale, right out of college. But this was the first time we had gone down there as a family. First time I'd been there in like 25 years. And it was the first time ever we as a family had gone there. So we decided uh, one afternoon to go to, uh, up to Boca Raton from Fort Lauderdale and go to the Boca Inlet. If you've been to South Florida, you know on the East Coast there's a series of inlets for the intercoastal waterway. And about every 10 miles or so, there's an inlet that, that the intercoastal waterway feeds into, and so these yachts and other boats come down that, and they go out into the ocean. And we went to the Boca Raton Inlet because it was there that I had the greatest fishing story of my life. <laughs> we said, let's go see what it looks like. And while we were there... I was surprised how it looked very similar, uh, very similar to 
to many, many years before. And so I'm there with uh, Rebecca, who's in like a senior in high school, and our daughter Sarah, who was just about to get married. And we're standing, and we're standing on the uh, which have been the south side of the the inlet. The ocean is to my right, and the currents coming through, and boats are going out right in front of us, and large condominiums on the other side. But this park, a public park, we're standing in the public park, which had been there back. Uh, years ago. So I said, let me tell you what happened to me right here, right here, about, you know, 35 years ago. I said, there was a high school kid named Andy Kayworth. He was a high school football player. He loved to fish. I was a youth director at his church. Every afternoon before football practice, Andy would go fishing. And over and over at these Bible studies, he said, I want to go fishing. I want you to go fishing with me. I said, okay. So one day we worked it out. We go. It's an afternoon. It's about noon, and we're going to fish until 2 o'clock when he had to go home and get ready to go to football practice. And so we were down here, and Andy, I'd never fished like this, and he said, if you see the bait fish, jump up out of the water, cast your bait there, because that means there's a large fish coming through. Andy and I were the only people fishing besides one man between us and the ocean. He was 100 yards away, I guess. We've been there about an hour, caught one little bitty amberjack. Andy's getting frustrated. I didn't know any better because I hadn't been down there, but he was frustrated because he wanted me to catch some fish. So I said in a prayer, Lord, please let us catch some fish. (laughs) That has nothing to do with what happened, but I remember that. And immediately, it was clouds of bait fish come out of the water from all directions. And Andy goes, he starts running up the beach, says, cast your, cast your bait, cast your bait over there. And so we start catching bluefish. I don't mean these size bluefish, I mean these size bluefish. And it leads to, for about the next hour and a half, more fish than I've ever seen caught. caught. Now you're going to think I'm turning into a preacher here, okay? Because of, you're going to think I'm lying. I'm not. There were cars, the, the bridge that was about as high as that balcony that came over the intercoastal waterway, cars were slowing down and seeing what was happening. So men in business suits were going to local bait shops, and they headed down there and buying gear, and they were all fishing. When we left, the beach was lined with people. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of bluefish now on the beach. And the news that night said that was the first time that had happened in 12 years. So... Now, here's my daughters. (laughs) You think I was enthusiastic? Do you think I had their attention? I did. Why? Because I had, it was my experience. I was not speaking about something I read about. I was saying, it happened. It happened there, right down there, right up there. See all that? And it it was all there. If you have a growing relationship with Christ, you will talk about it. You will talk about it. So, secondly, in verses 6 to 8, I think being an ambassador and having success in mission depends on clarity. On clarity. Look at 6 through 8. This is when they ask the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, if you don't know what the mission is, you will not be successful or effective at it. Uh, Some time ago, I mentioned Bill Peterson. Bill Peterson was a um, great football coach, high school and pros, I mean, college and pros. He died died almost 30 years ago. 
and he coached at Florida State and then with the Houston Oilers. And they say that he made the term athletic scholarship into an oxymoron. And Coach Pete, as he was called, he would reshape the English language, and that's kind of what he became famous for. One of his more novel expressions was to tell his team, pair off in groups of three, (laughs) then line up in a circle. Hard hard to follow such directions. Uh, My favorite one was, I want you to line up alphabetically by height. (laughs) So the apostles gathered for these final instructions. They need clarity. What exactly are they to do? And they ask, are you getting ready to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking Jesus has come back to be an earthly king, to be the military leader they were expecting and crush the Romans. And Jesus responds... And he says, it's not up for you to know times or that only the Father knows. Um, They're focusing on on the Jews. They're focusing on their nationality. They're focusing on the city of Jerusalem. But Jesus says, and the book of Acts says, it begins in Jerusalem, but it goes to Judea, and then it spreads out to Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And the gospel's not just for Jews only, but the, the wall has been broken down between Jew and Gentile, Christ, his gospel is for all people, it's to go to the ends of the earth. So it's a spiritual, intentional kingdom. His kingdom is not advanced by military might or by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he promised that the Holy Spirit would empower us to be his witnesses. They would begin in Jerusalem, the national capital, in which he had been condemned and crucified, but they would continue into the immediate area of Judea and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now, Let me tell you how many followers of Jesus there were when he spoke these words. I'm not real good with counting how many people each Sunday are in here. But I guess we might have 200 or more. Maybe, I can't tell. When he spoke these words, there were less than 200 people, best we can tell, that were his followers. So he spoke these words probably when he had no more followers than our are in this room or or slightly fewer but within just a matter of weeks and then into a few short months it numbered his followers numbered into the thousands and the tens of thousands within a very very short time because the disciples did follow the great commission acts 1 8 did happen and it happened in their lives they went out and made disciples they did take the gospel around the year 200 or so Tertullian, who was an early church father, a Christian author who lived in Africa. By then, Christ had been risen for about 150 years. So around the year 200, Tertullian wrote a famous treatise called A True Christian. It's giving a defense of the Christian church, and he's giving to his own people an explanation of what has happened since Christ was ascended 150 years earlier. He said, we are but of yesterday, meaning we are relatively young yet we have filled all places among your cities islands citadels boroughs assemblies your very camps your tribes of the common people the councils the judges the palaces the senate the judiciaries we leave only to you your temples he basically is saying we are everywhere we have permeated the entire world well how did that happen because the disciples fulfilled acts 1 8 The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they went out as witnesses. 
And we often in the church forget why we exist. And the popular term for that today is mission drift. There are books written with that title. Mission drift, when you, when you drift away from your original purpose of why you were created. Sometimes in the inquirer's class, and I've taught that for so many years, I've seen so many people come through it, I will say, what if I handed out a blank index card to every person here? And, and I was to ask you, tell me what you think the purpose of the church should be. And typically, the, and sometimes we will speak those, and rather than write them down, it will be uh, care for one another, uh, help families teach their children about Christ, uh, youth ministry, preach the gospel, worship, um, uh, care for one another, uh, mercy ministry, uh, evangelism. It's usually a lot of things. But the overall heading is to go and make disciples. That's our purpose. And these other things serve that purpose. If we focus on perfecting the church before we do any ministry outside the church, we'll never, we'll never do it. Because there's always areas to perfect. Oh man, we need a bigger room, or we need additional rooms, or we need better parking, or we need, we need decaf, or, or we need Starbucks, or we need, you know, whatever it might be. And I'm all about perfecting the church. I tend to focus on details like that. But if we wait, if we wait until everything is perfected to the level we think it should be before we seek to reach out, we'll never do it. We'll never do it. But these guys did it. In verse 8, when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, the word there is martyr. You will be my martyrs. A martyr, you know, is someone who bears testimony for another person or testimony for a cause with their death. The Holy Spirit will empower us even to die as his ambassadors. You know what happened to these men standing there when Jesus said these words in Acts chapter 1? One standing there was James, the son of Zebedee. He was beheaded in the year 44 A.D., first of the twelve to die. Andrew was Peter's brother. He was crucified upon a diagonal or X-shaped cross. Philip was crucified in A.D. 54. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was skinned alive and then beheaded uh, near the Caspian Sea. Matthew was killed by a sword in A.D. 60. Peter was crucified upside down in the city of Rome in A.D. 64. Thomas was killed by a spear in Madras, India. James, the son of Alphaeus, was beaten to death with a club after being crucified and stoned. Jude was crucified. Simon the Zealot was crucified in A.D. 74. Matthias, who was Judas's replacement, was stoned and beheaded. Only John. Only John we know... Uh, live to an old age. Sometimes being an ambassador has a high price. I researched, in other words, I googled, therefore it has to be true, how many U.S. ambassadors have died in their service. Um, some, too, have died in uh, plane crashes, but there have been six U.S. ambassadors since World War II ended who have died at the hands of militants. John Maine, ambassador to Guatemala in 1968, was killed by a gunman. Cleo Noel, who was ambassador to Sudan in 1973, he was killed by his kidnappers. Roger Davies, ambassador to Cyprus in 1974, was shot. Francis Malloy, ambassador to Lebanon, was killed in 1976, killed in Beirut. Adolf Dubs, ambassador to Afghanistan, was killed in 1979 during a rescue attempt. And then J. Christopher Stevens, ambassador to Libya, 
on September 11, 2012, was killed in the attack on the mission in Benghazi. So six U.S. ambassadors killed or martyred, if you will. But that number pales in comparison to our fellow Christian ambassadors who have been martyred. Just 10 days ago, just 10 days ago on April the 2nd, when the Islamic militant group Al-Shabaab targeted Christians in an attack on the Garissa University in Garissa, Kenya, 147 killed, 80 plus injured. The attackers separated the students by religion, killed those who said they were Christians. I read one eyewitness account where a student who survived said, quote, if you were a Christian, you were shot on the spot. Now let me read you what opened my eyes this week from R.C. Sproul. And I benefited greatly, and you hear me quote him. But often R.C. doesn't say a lot about specifics in uh, missions. That's the one area. I mean, he, he is theological and, and fantastic teaching the Bible, but often he doesn't say a lot about missions. So you can imagine my uh, surprise when I read this in his commentary that was written just a few years ago on the book of Acts. He writes, I believe that within 30 years, the largest and strongest branch of Christendom will be in Africa and that it is absolutely critical that the church in the United States right now pour as many resources as possible into the emerging churches of the third world, particularly in Africa. We have the materials. We have things that these people need to be grounded and strengthened for future generations. They cannot provide it, but we can. Last of all, and briefly, Mission success depends on urgency. I read earlier verses 9 to 11. I won't reread it, but that's where they're standing and Jesus ascends and into a cloud. They see him no longer. Uh, Luke is saying this is no fable. This is, this is not a joke. This was not a trick. They're standing there watching this when the angel said, why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? See, we're not meant to just be left here gazing up into heaven. Uh, there's work to be done. There's people to be reached. There's churches to be planted. Closing, last minute. Three observations about the ascension. First, it's an explanation as to why Jesus never appeared again. The disciples did not expect him to show up again after this. For 40 days, they had probably been filled with anticipation each day. Will he appear today? Will he be here today? But after this, no more. They knew he would not be appearing again. Second, in a visible way, he was promoted he had come in humiliation when he took upon himself a bodily form. Now is he promoted in a glorified body to the right hand of the Father. But third, and the one that I think has most application to us, it tells us what the next great event in God's redemptive calendar will be. And that will be the return of Christ. When they said in verse 11, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will come back on a cloud. He will come back from the right hand of the Father. It will happen. For those of you who teach Sunday school and even as you teach your own children, which is the primary teaching, sometimes, more often than not, you may think, is anything happening here? Is any seeds being planted? Is there any fruit? I was the world's worst Sunday school student. I didn't want to be there. I was forced to go there by my mother. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know any prayers. 
But I do remember some of my teachers, a particular one who I can't recall her name, but as about a fourth or fifth grader, she must have been the oldest person I'd ever seen. I mean, she was a fossil. I didn't, how does this person move? I mean, now, looking back, she was probably all of 35, 40. But, you know, at that time, I thought, ah, you know, tales from the crypt here on Sunday morning. And so I don't remember anything about the lessons. I didn't pay attention. And she, boy, she hung in there. She would stand up each week to the five or eight students in our class, and she'd teach. But here's what I remember. And I hope this is encouraging to you that may think your labor is in vain. Right, out, right outside of our town, one uh, late one Saturday night, around 2 a.m., a munitions factory blew up. There was a large explosion. Thankfully, nobody was killed, but it was a massive explosion from the pictures I saw later. And it was a few miles outside of town. She lived toward that direction. Everybody heard it, 2 in the morning, boom, you know, and the, the, the ground shook. Well, all I remember... <laughs> is that in Sunday school, somewhere in her lesson, within a few weeks after that happened, she was talking and said, I was in a sound sleep that night when in the middle of the night I heard boom and the windows shook and I woke my eyes, I opened my eyes and my thought was, he's returned. That was it. I have never forgotten that. And I thought, Lord, help me to live with that kind of anticipation like she had, to where out of a dead sleep, her first thought was, Christ is returned. Let's pray together. Father, our world and our hearts tell us to live for what we can see and touch, what we can accumulate, what we can put around ourselves to make us feel secure, how we can gain accolades to those people around us. And yet none of that is mentioned here uh, by the risen Christ to the disciples. So we pray that we would not have mission drift even in our own hearts, that we would see you place us here to be your ambassadors as we work, as we play, as we befriend people. Uh, we pray that we might express to them a growing relationship with Christ, that you would help us to be prepared and equipped. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.